G'day friends and welcome to another episode of the Equip podcast. You'll actually have two episodes this week, the first of which, which you're now listening to, is a review of what we looked at on Sunday when we compared annihilationism with the traditional biblical view of hell, that is eternal conscious torment. And then there's a second episode where I dive a little bit more into some of those theological questions that annihilationism raises, as well as go a bit further and talk about universalism. Uh, as we pointed out in our time on Sunday, uh, universalism is sort of an evolution of sorts of annihilationism. That's not true historically. Uh, universalism came first, but annihilationism denies that punishment in hell is eternal. So does universalism. And uh, universalism affirms that hell is rehabilitative, whereas annihilationism doesn't. So if it can be shown that annihilationism is not really a sound biblical option, then by necessity, the same would be said of universalism. And that's where we got to uh, in our time on Sunday. Uh, we looked at the fact that, biblically speaking, hell or punishment in hell is certainly pictured as eternal. It doesn't have an endpoint. We looked at a few arguments from annihilationism, particularly to do with Greek words and biblical metaphors. So one of the arguments we saw for annihilationism was that the word which we translate as eternal in our English translations, in Greek that's the word ionios, can mean eternity, but it can also mean a finite period of time. Sometimes this gets translated as an age or an era. We looked at a new tool for many of us, which is called the BDAG, it's just a compendium, a dictionary, a lexicon of usages of Greek words across the New Testament. And it compares how words are used across the scriptures, both the Old and New Testament, uh, as well as contemporary sources at the time that uh, Greek writers were, were using. And so what we saw there was that this word ionios can indeed mean a period of time an era, an age, or, or sometime long ago, sometime that started and presumably will finish. Of course, it can also mean eternal. Often when it's talking about God, it means, or always when it's talking about God, it means eternal, such as in Hebrews 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. That word there, eternal, is ionios, and it's obviously referring to God as uncreated. However, Titus 1-2 talks about the hope of eternal life. So there's Ionios, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. The phrase there is chronos Ionios. Clear example where the word Ionios means age, a finite period of time. Uh, what we saw, however, is just because a word can mean something doesn't mean that it does mean something in each and every context. You need to look at what's being said in the verse itself, and that supplies the meaning of the word. In Titus 1-2, you'll notice that that word chronos comes before ionios. In fact, uh, each time when that happens, it is referring to a finite period of time. Where the word chronos doesn't come before ionios, 
stands to reason, we should ask whether a finite period of time is being meant. One example of that is in Matthew 25, 46, which is a popular verse that annihilationists sometimes use to mean that, uh, you know, here, here we have that these will go away into eternal punishment. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to suffer for eternity. It means that it will be a moment of punishment that will have eternal consequences. And there's that Ionios. Ionios could just mean an age. It's, uh, it's an age of punishment, if you will. Um, however, we noted that on the second half of that verse, the righteous will go into eternal, that is Ionios, life. Um, it would be a bit strange if Matthew was quoting Jesus to say, well, the punishment when it says eternal isn't really eternal, but uh, the life when it says eternal is. <laughs> sort of speaking out of both sides of his mouth. Um, what we need to do in each context is ask, how is this word being used? And in the cases where annihilationists claim that it means a period of time as opposed to eternity, the argument just doesn't hold. Um, I'll uh, link to an article in the resources you can look at that shows some more examples of that. You can take a look yourself if you like. Another example of this is in the word group for destruction. So in English, we use the word destruction or perish. Uh, in Greek, there's a, a number of words there, apoleia, apolumi, or olethros. And uh, indeed, it can mean complete and total destruction, uh, but it also can mean other things. So we looked in other contexts like Luke 15.32, where the word apolumi is used to mean lost. Uh, your brother was dead, he is alive. He was lost, apolumi, and is found. Uh, in Matthew 9.17, we read about the new and old wineskins, and uh, the idea there is new wine is not put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, the wine is spilled, and the skins are apolumi, destroyed. Not that the skins, you know, suddenly cease to exist. Rather that they are wasted, they're ruined, they're no longer fit for purpose. Finally, Matthew 26, verses 7 and 8, when the, uh, the woman comes and uh, uses the expensive ointment onto Jesus' head. And the disciples see it and they say, why this apolumi? Why this waste? Again, it's not destroyed. It's that they disagree with its use. It's ruined. What a waste this is. And so this opens the possibility, albeit not certainty, that apolumi doesn't mean annihilated in hell passages. It could mean lost or ruined or wasted. And indeed, in English, we use destroy sometimes to mean that. It doesn't always mean to totally cause to no longer exist, but to sort of make useless or throw away. Uh, how do we know if this is what is meant in the passages about hell? Well, again, we need to look at the immediate textual context. And so we looked at a few passages there that use this apolumi, apoleia, olethros word group, and we saw that it's not likely that it's meaning complete and total ceasing to exist. Uh, more that it's referring to sort of the, the waste, the ruin, the, the horror of hell and the punishment therein. So the Greek words that sometimes annihilationists say refer to total destruction, ceasing to exist, don't really accomplish that in their actual context. They make a second argument, which is that the use of biblical metaphor shows that punishment in hell is temporary. Revelation 14, 9, 11, they talk about how the smoke of 
people's torment goes up forever and ever. But surely the fire and the sulfur that brings about that smoke would destroy people. That's what fire does, is it totally destroys things. And so, yes, the smoke goes up forever and ever, but the destruction happens in a moment. So it's a momentary destruction with eternal consequences. Uh, we talked as well about how fire doesn't always destroy things. It has other metaphorical uses as well, so it's a bit of a strange claim to make. Uh, there's also a hint that we shouldn't simply read the word fire literally. And this comes from other metaphors used for hell. One is outer darkness. How is it that light producing fire and darkness could exist at the same time? Now, many Christians have noticed this sort of contradiction over history, and so they've come to call the fire and the darkness servant metaphors. That is, they imply an image rather than directly describing the reality. And it's really important not to stress the wrong aspect of a metaphor. To stress the total destructiveness of fire uh, would be inappropriate in thinking about what happens in hell. Uh, so, for example, in Luke 16, 24, we have the rich man in agony or in anguish in the fire. He's not totally consumed up, and that doesn't seem the prospect for him. Uh, he's instead in agony. It seems that's what the fire is picturing. Again, remember Luke 16 is not talking about hell per se. It's talking about the intermediate state. Uh, however, it is a hellish torment. It's sort of an anticipation of what hell will be like. Mark 9, 47 to 48, um, Jesus says that their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So again, it's implying that fire is an unpleasant punishment and that it goes on forever. Now, clearly the fire can't go on forever if the thing that it's burning is consumed up. Uh, there's a similar idea in Isaiah 66, 24, which, um, which, from which Jesus quotes there. That this fire is eternal also finds historical backing with uh, as early as Justin Martyr, who's a very early Christian writer. He noted that the wicked will face pain and torment forever in fire because they freely chose to sin. So he's linking the fire with that meaning. Um, don't forget as well that in that Revelation 14 passage, there's a reference to um, straight after that the smoke of the torment going up, that those who have been tormented will have no rest day or night. It would be strange to say that they are consumed in fire, the smoke goes up and then they have no rest if they were totally destroyed. Having no rest day or night implies that you still exist moment by moment, day and night and day and night. So uh, those were a number of the things we looked at on Sunday. Uh, we also quickly touched on the theological idea uh, that hell might ruin the experience of heaven, but we, uh, I think... Uh, justly pointed out that we will be changed to totally have the mind of God. Uh, we will see justice for what it is, truth for what it is, and love for what it truly is too. Uh, not just love for people, but God's love for himself, for his own glory, and we too will love his glory. I think that the scriptures are clear that we will not be pining for those who are in hell, but rather we will be worshipping God, praising him, thanking him for the pouring out of his justice. And Revelation 19, 1-6 is a picture of that, I think. All right, now uh, that's where we got up to. In the next podcast, I'm going to cover a few questions and also uh, touch base on universalism. All right, thanks, guys.